ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I am Sam Eagle, and these are some important safety instructions Excuse for me, you. Sam, Sam. Teenagers, give them an inch, they swim all over you. Yo, Kermit, my main frog. Uh, what is it, Floyd? We're going to need a couple of more seconds to get this gig swinging. What? Every man's a king and every king's a clown. Once again, it's topsy-turvy day. Hello, hi there. Welcome to my park. How you doing? Hello. Lights. Camera. Action! WDW Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 599. And I'm here once again, not only to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experiences, but I also want to bring you some of that Disney magic wherever you are with the podcast, live video broadcast on Facebook every Wednesday night, blog, special events, books, audio tours, a few surprises, and more. Whether it's your first time visiting or if you've been to the parks hundreds of times, if you're planning your next vacation or love the history, details, secrets, stories, and people behind the magic, there's something in the show for you because each week I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between. If you're a new listener, Thank you. Welcome. Please go back and check out some or all the past episodes for interviews, top tens, reviews, and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts and find everything else at www.radio.com. Please join me this week as I sit down with legendary producer and director Don Hahn about his latest work, or should I say gift, the incredibly moving feature-length documentary Howard, now streaming on Disney+. We discuss the genesis of the project, creative choices, process, challenges, emotions, music, and more. We also talk about the meaning and the lessons learned from this incredible, heartfelt journey. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show, as I'll have more information, including an announcement and reveal of something, actually the first of many things, that I've been working on for over a year and I'm ready to share with you. Of course, I'll also have more information, updates, your voicemails, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Ready to stand. Ready to stand. As a lyricist, the last great place to do musicals is in animation. The combination of Howard Ashman's talent and the Walt Disney name was a home run waiting to happen. The stuff that was coming out of Howard's pen lyrically was just unbelievable. It's quiet, you know what I mean? It's a quiet village. Yeah. Howard and Alan Menken had captured the imagination of a generation. We knew something really special was happening, but what we didn't know was that in nine months, Howard would be gone. And Howard said, we really have to have a serious talk. I'm sick. In animation history and in musical history, Howard's mark is indelible. Me. Ah. Yes. 
Howard's gift was so strong and his light was so bright that it has not diminished over the years. The name Don Hahn is synonymous with exceptional storytelling. He started working in animation for Disney legend Willie Reitherman as an assistant director on The Fox and the Hound and worked on numerous other films including The Great Mouse Detective, The Black Cauldron, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's produced some of the most successful animated films in recent history including The Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Beauty and the Beast, with Beauty being the first animated film to ever be nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture. And oh, by the way, all three of those films were also adapted to stage musicals. His directorial debut in his documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty shed light on Disney's animation renaissance in the 80s and 90s, and by the way, is available on Disney+. And that story in many ways continues and expands with Howard, the story of Howard Ashman, which is also now available on Disney+, and which Don also produced. I've previously interviewed Don along with Peter Schneider on show 160 about Waking Sleeping Beauty and then again sat down with Don in person on show 369 to talk about his film career, including work on Disney Nature and Maleficent. He also shared thoughts on the success of films like Frozen and Tangled, the importance of music, the transition many films have made to Broadway and how other animated films have transitioned to live action. We also discuss what inspires us story, and much more. And as Howard debuts on Disney Plus this week and having watched it myself already more than once, I'm once again excited and sincerely honored to welcome back uh, the one and only Mr. Don Hahn. Don, it's so good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's always good to see you. And first things first, um, congratulations on on really what is an extraordinary um, project. I had an opportunity to watch Howard before we we spoke today. Fortunately, early enough time to wipe away some of the the tears and the, the happy tears and the sad tears uh, from me. So I'm really excited to, to chat with you today. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I appreciate it. So, Don, I know um, you obviously are, are a huge fan of, of documentaries, especially those that shine a light, much as this does, on people who are, um, as you like to call, sort of heroes of the arts. And I want to start by talking about uh, 2009's Waking Sleeping Beauty, which I believe is, is required viewing for anybody who is not just a fan of Walt Disney feature animation, but really animation history itself. And while Howard certainly isn't a you know a quote-unquote sequel per se it, it certainly seems to be a, a continuation of the foundation that waking sleeping beauty laid can you connect the dots for us from waking sleeping beauty to howard and then how the and when this film came to be yeah happily so it it, it is connected somewhat to waking sleeping beauty um partially because that story is about uh the um the, the, the golden age, uh, which is not my words so much as what people have become to call it the golden age. I, I was thinking this morning, you know, we never walked around saying, hey, we're having a great golden age right now. Isn't it a terrific renaissance? You know, you don't. You're just trying to make movies and do the best you can. But um, certainly Howard was a big part of that. And, uh, you know, it was a combination. And, and we say this, I think, in Waking Sleeping Beauty, it was kind of a perfect storm of a young group of 
uh, men and women who wanted to show that they could make films um, in the style of Walt Disney, as good as Walt Disney, or uh, and whether we did or not is kind of another conversation, but we really wanted to. Uh, you had a group of really um, brilliant executives that came in with Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Peter Schneider. Um, and Peter was my uh, my colleague and producer on uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty. And that was interesting because Peter's a character. He's, um, I, I really have grown to like him a lot. He's uh, was the head of animation during that time uh, in the 80s and 90s. And he brought a lot uh, to the party and really brought a lot of talent in, uh, brought a lot of openness about critiquing each other's work. And um, and then in the category of It's a Small World, he was the company manager on Little Shop of Horrors in New York when um, Alan and Howard were having this huge hit uh, at the Orpheum Theater in New York. So he was very close to Howard. So um, all those things kind of combined to start to work on Waking Sleeping Beauty. What that story became was more about palace intrigue and the relationships between Roy and Michael and Jeffrey and, and the um, kind of rise and fall of, um, you know, uh, of, of that era. Um, so it wasn't completely about Howard, but people responded so well to the Howard portion. And I, I realized, you know, this story really hasn't been told. Uh, there's no bios, there's no books, there's nothing about Howard really, aside from a terrific blog that his sister Sarah runs. And she's a writer, a great writer. Um, so it's a lot of material, but nothing that's out there to, for the world. Um, and so I really thought that I had that material from Waking Sleeping Beauty. And I thought I have so much more that's not in Waking Sleeping Beauty. Um, and about five years ago, four or five years ago, I had lunch with Sarah, with Howard's sister. And uh, almost on an impulse, kind of like you buy a package of chewing gum at the checkout counter. I said, I'm going to make a film about Howard. And, um, and she said, oh, that's so nice. She was very polite and, and later told me she didn't quite believe me. Um, but I, 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 I knew I had to, which is an odd way to say it, but I had to because I felt like I knew him. I knew his story a little bit. I knew where the footage was. I knew his family and admired them and Alan really well. Um, and I thought at least I can pull the components together and, um, and try to tell it. I didn't know if it was a short subject or what, but um, once I started looking at everything and we had hours of material, I thought, I think there's a movie in here and it's a great story. Um, it's a story of, as you hinted at, um, artistic heroism, which I, I love making movies like that. I love telling stories about Tyrus Wong or about, uh, Mary Blair or those types of people. Um, so that, that was kind of the genesis of it all. And, um, once I started stringing it together and looking at it, I just thought, what a remarkable man. And with 30 years distance now, uh, I think we can put him into context a little bit more about what he means to musical theater and animation. Yeah, because it, it's it's such an overwhelming undertaking to try and tell, you know, to author someone else's life story, especially when they're not with us anymore, to to help contribute to it. You know, and so uh, as I was watching and I was sort of thinking about this, I'm like, how do, you know, how do you say I'm the right person to do this and this is the, the right time to do it as well? Well, I never uh, assumed, even on Waking Sleeping Beauty, I never assumed I was the director um, we actually interviewed a lot of directors for Waking Sleeping Beauty, some really fine, amazing documentarians. And in the end, it was Peter who said, you know, you just do this. Um, and at the time, I, I had been directing some documentaries. I was reinventing myself a little bit. I was, I was uh, not to get too uh, much into psychotherapy, but I was really trying to uh, envision another chapter in my life after animation. 
Uh, I adore animation and still do. And I love the films that are being made now by Disney and Pixar and other studios. Uh, but I wanted an, uh, um, a new challenge. So that, that was almost a accident kind of slipping into that. And, um, and since then I've, I've just fallen in love with the medium of, of telling stories in documentary form. Um, so in looking at all that footage, um, I, I did not know Howard as well as I thought I did. Uh, and I think we've all experienced that you work with people and you think, you know, them, um, but we really don't. Um, so I knew Howard's story on the surface, but once you start talking and digging through uh, the archives and, and we really went on a treasure hunt to find bits of audio and radio interviews and anything we could, um, you find a really interesting, talented, vulnerable guy. You know, he was uh, afraid of like many uh, creative spirits, afraid of humiliation, um, unsure of what he was working on sometimes <laughs> But then hand in glove with that, he would make these amazing, brave leaps of creativity. Um, you know, like who else would take a 50s girl group rock and roll and pair it with the Roger Corman monster movie? Uh, Howard would do that. Or take um, a precious Danish uh, fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, and pair it with uh, Rastafarian reggae Caribbean music, you know? So those kinds of mashups... Uh, and adaptations were really natural for Howard. Um, so I love that. I, not only is he a brilliant guy, but I could tell the story about his um, humanity, his vulnerability. And of course, the climax of that, sadly, was his um, HIV diagnosis. You know, I, I will sort of step back for a second, because I think the, the process of creating a film like this, which is obviously not one where it's, you know, talking heads and you doing interviews, but that, that process of gathering not just the stories but the photos and videos had to not only be incredibly time-consuming but I have to assume that not everything that you found would make it in I mean do you go in with a set of mental storyboards like an animated feature or, or how do you weave all these elements together to craft not just a compelling but as the end result shows an incredibly emotionally moving film as well well, it's, um, it's a process and, uh, the start is to pull in good collaborators. So we had an amazing editor in Stephen Yao and, uh, a great producer I've worked with since going back to Fantasia 2000, uh, Lori Corngable, who's a Disney animation alumni. Um, we started at the library of Congress and you gather all that information and then you put all the clothes up on the line. You know, you just look at it all and, um, get a sense of what are key moments. Um, and then I looked for my spokespeople. I knew early on, I didn't want to have uh, a narrator. Uh, I didn't want to have old guys reminiscing. Uh, I think that's lazy in a way. I, I wanted to have the spokespeople be people who knew Howard personally. So I didn't even want critics or, or uh, experts in theater or, you know, people like that. I wanted his sister and his partner, Bill and people who, could speak to him on a, on a fairly human level and not, not make a puff piece about him. Uh, Howard doesn't need a puff piece. You know, he's, <laughs> his work speaks for itself. Um, so that was the genesis of it all. And, and I was lucky because his family and close friends were, were cooperative for the most part. Um, uh, you know, we, we went up to Sarah, his, his sister's uh, house in upstate New York and spent a day scanning old family photo albums um, Alan Menken sent us photos and, and bits of audio. 
uh, we have 200 or so audio tapes that are like rehearsal tapes, you know, and Alan and Howard or, or, or Howard and um, Marvin Hamish would work together. They'd have a little tape recorder on top of the piano so you can hear them working or arguing or, you know, s- kind of sorting through a moment where maybe the lyrics aren't written yet, but they have an idea for a song. And those are interesting to me. Um, and so I, you start to form up um, what you want to do with the film. Yes, it had to be biography, uh, but I also wanted to be instructive. I wanted to have people walk away with a sense of why Howard was the way he was and, and also walk away with um, a little bit of his craft. You know, how did he approach this? How, how did he look at a, um, a movie like Beauty and the Beast and decide uh, where songs might go and what those songs should be? Um, so that starts to indicate a direction. And then, and then literally you shop for material that illustrates that. Then the best part of a film is when um, you stop directing it and the movie starts telling you what it wants. And I don't mean that in some sort of weird metaphysical way, but it really happens, you know, and it happens on any movie. The, the film starts to turn back to you and say, well, I know you're trying to do this, but I really want to do that. And so you start to, go oh i get it it's uh it's a little more personal of a story uh or things would dawn on me like oh you know this house that howard and his partner bill were building in upstate new york was really symbolic of a life that they never could lead together so let's use the house and you know so the film starts to tell you uh what it wants and um and that's really a great time because it kind of lets you off the hook as a director in it and it gives you a, a a partner um literally um, and so that, along with great collaborators, uh, great friends that I could call in, uh, and um, we were just remembering the other day that we actually tested this film on a Disney cruise ship. And uh, that may sound insane, but we went on a Disney Vacation Club cruise with lots of great Disney fans, and um, we screened the movie. This has been over two years ago because I wanted an audience response. And I thought, well, it'll be safe because we're away from Wi-Fi and internet out in the middle <laughs> of the high seas and we can get a good reaction. And, um, and we did, we got and, and it was a reaction that was, um, you know, favorable, but there were moments when the audience was bored or, you know, whatever. So we were able to make some corrections and, uh, you know, had a, a really great loyal kind of Disney audience to help us. You know, as you were talking about gathering all of this together, I, I have to imagine that as as wonderful it was, it was probably also difficult in some respects to sit down with his family and his partner and his friends to some degree because it is so emotional. Um, and you can hear that. The thing I, I real that really struck me was how you can feel and hear and sense the emotion without seeing anybody's face as they're they're talking about it. Yeah, I, I, and this was the discovery that I still make, which is I think sometimes the theater of the mind is more powerful than we think. Um, it was intimidating sometimes to sit down with um, with Bill, Howard's partner, or with Alan Menken and hear their stories uh, because you're asking them to be very um, personal about what they experienced. Uh, part of the reason I didn't want to film was I, I wanted to transport you as an audience member back to that time. So I wanted you to be there literally like somewhat like we did in Waking Sleeping Beauty. And that actually helps because without a camera and lighting and hair and makeup and all the things that a camera crew brings to a situation, people relax more. And after five minutes, they forget that they're even being recorded. So we could literally sit down in big easy chairs 
with these people and talk for a while and it allowed them to open up um, and, and be more vulnerable for lack of a better word about what their feelings were. Um, and, and that's what humanizes uh, Howard and, and to the people around him is we all share these feelings. We, you know, we all share a sense of uh, wonder at his talent or loss at his uh, illness. And um, those are the kind of interviews that I really look for. And uh, I, I, there's something that I love about doing those interviews. Um, maybe I'm a, a closet therapist, uh, but I love hearing people's inner feelings because we don't share that enough. And, and I, and so I was, I was really privileged to be able to sit with the spokespeople in this movie, whether it was, um, you know, Alan or, or Sarah or whoever Katzenberg and be able to hear what they had to say. And it, and it very much comes true. There's a there's a wonderful sense of of authenticity and honesty. And look, not everybody is just sitting there, just you know, going on about how wonderful Alan was. And actually, so much of the movie, which which I loved and almost wasn't expecting, was is Howard telling his own story in his own words because he was not just a great you know songwriter, but but such a great storyteller. And the stories that that he's able to tell, uh, you know, as he's recording it, not obviously realizing it's going to be the story of his life is not just about his work and his talent and his legacy, but his personal journey and his personal battles as well. And, and obviously one of the most Im- impactful um, parts of the film is looking back at his illness and his passing and that moment that he discovers that he's HIV positive and, the, the choices I was trying to think about that, you know, I actually watched that that section again. I went back and watched it again because I thought about the choices that you had to make in terms of taking probably what little you had in terms of photos and videos of that time and that moment and then sharing that that pivotal really that night at the 92nd Street Y. Yeah, it's. um Thank you for noticing that it was, it's frustrating sometimes because you can't always find something to illustrate what you're trying to say. Usually there's a photo or, or some footage you can use, but um, we discovered and Bill discovered that the, the night of a, a terrific presentation Howard and Allen gave about little, little shop of horrors at the 92nd street Y, which is a terrific institution in, uh, in New York city um, was the day that Howard was diagnosed. And Bill was, uh, you know, in shock and said, you can't do this. Obviously, we'll just stay home. And Howard said, no, I'm going to go do it. We booked it. They're expecting us. Um, Revealed so much to me about Howard's um, acceptance of what was happening. The shock of being diagnosed with what was at that time a death sentence. You know, we're, we're lucky now that there are maybe not a cure, but certainly treatment for AIDS victims, uh, thanks to people like Dr. Fauci, who is still in the news, uh, was a key contributor to a lot of the therapies that we knew use now for AIDS victims. Um, at the time, that wasn't the case. So it, it really was a time when you were saying goodbye to so many of your friends and colleagues because of it. And Howard certainly had said goodbye to people. So we get to the 92nd Street Y. Uh, Lori Corngable, the, my producer, calls up the 92nd Street Y. Now, we didn't videotape anything. We don't have anything. We don't even have a still photograph of Howard that night. And, um, and then after a couple of phone calls, they said, you know, we finally found an audio tape. Somebody taped it. And we thought, you, I can't believe that. Can you send it to us? And they did. Um, and we listened and it was, uh, you can hear it in Howard's voice. He's his usual self. He's funny. He's 
he's clever, he's sarcastic, but there's a tiredness in his voice later on when the moderator asks him, you know, what the future of the Broadway musical is. And there's an exhaustion in his voice from uh, years of, you know, writing for Broadway. He had just started working with Disney animation and it was at a crossroads. And it was some of the most revel uh, revealing tape in the movie. And I had nothing to illustrate it with. Um, so all I used in the end were still photographs of empty chairs. And again, that was a, a it's, it's, it's Hitchcock. It's the theater of the mind. It's counting on the audience and trusting the audience will fill in the blanks for you. That hearing Howard and seeing an empty chair symbolizes uh, where he was headed. And was that going to be enough? And, and thankfully it was. We thought of all kinds of solutions. We thought, oh God, should we animate something? Should we do a spectacular computer graphics effect here? Should we, you know, whatever. And um, thank God for human beings because we can fill in the blanks and uh, the audience is, is smart and, and can really appreciate that moment with very little there. The, the same with the end of the movie, which deals um, sadly with Howard's death. Um, there's nothing to illustrate that. There's no film, there's no footage, there's no audio. Uh, all we have is Alan told me the story of him hearing about it in an incredible piece of audio. Um, and I just illustrated it with uh, shots of the sun rising over Manhattan. And I felt like um, th that will be enough, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and trusted the audience to fill in uh, the emotion of the moment. And it was, it was brilliant. It, it was, um, it, it was, it, there was something uh, incredibly haunting uh, about that, but you're right. It, it allowed us to sort of put all those pieces together, but look, so you mentioned Alan a number of times and like any film music is so important to the telling of the story. And I had a chance uh, years ago to interview Alan Menken back on show 196. And we talked a lot about his relationship with Alan I can't imagine anyone else other than Alan composing the incredible emotional score for, for this film. Um, and had, we had no plans to do that. You know, it's a documentary. We, it, it was an independent documentary. You know, I started out without any uh, commitment from any studio. Um, and I wanted to keep it that way for a while until I could gather my thoughts about what it should be. Um, and then once it was together, and, and this is before Disney came on board. Um, I sent it to Alan right before the holidays. Um, this has been two years ago also, three years maybe. Um, and I just wanted him to see it. You know, it's his story as much as Howard's. I want him to see it. I want him to flag anything that felt wrong. And, um, and then the unexpected thing happened is he called back on Monday and said, you know, I saw it and I have to score this movie. And I said, I can't afford you. You know, these, these movies are made, <laughs> documentaries of all kinds are made on micro budgets. You know, it's, it's a little golden age of documentaries right now. But at that time, and even now, these movies are not $100 million movies. They're kind of $100 movies. So um, he said, I don't care. I, I, this is a chance for me, um, Alan said, to uh, kind of pay my musical tribute to Howard. Uh, so he did. So I sent him all the elements. And over the holidays that year, he wrote um, this amazing kind of piano track to accompany it all. And then uh, one of our close collaborators, Alan and mine both, is a, a composer named Chris Bacon, uh, who took that then and produced it and arranged it into what you hear in the film. And so, uh, you know, music can transcend dialogue uh, so many times and express so many wonderful things. And Alan's gift is certainly doing that. 
So can you imagine being a, a director of a film and having Alan says, say he wants to you know, score your movie is a tremendous gift um, and, and was in the end, uh, uh, you know, just a, such a huge contribution to the story I was telling. And, and it's a story, obviously, that that is so important to you. It clearly started and continues as a, a passion project. And, and I got the sense that you hinted before that um, you – as well as you you knew Howard, you learned and possibly understood a lot more about Howard from his processes to, you mentioned his self-esteem and mindset and maybe even fears as a result of doing this project. What what did you learn? What did you learn and sort of take away from, you know, crafting this, this incredible documentary? Well, um, Howard's a good teacher. You know, he famously came into Disney animation within the first few months and, and sat down and did that uh, kind of lecture during little mermaid of which there's a bit in this movie and another bit in waking sleeping beauty where he just went through and said, okay, here's the, the, um, the art of the American Broadway musical, which is a very American art form um, is that way because characters break into song when they can't express their emotions in any other way. So you're so in love or you're so hateful or you're so envious or you're so happy that you can't do anything but sing about it. And then these are the typical moments. You sing about it when you are introducing characters. You sing about it when you are um, expressing what you want in life, um, when the villain's expressing what he or she wants in life. And so he laid out not only the songs for Little Mermaid, but kind of the uh, paradigm of, of, of what a structure of uh, musicals would be, a structure that we've, we've followed ever since. Um, and that structure wasn't unique to Howard. It's just, he was a student of it and, and studied uh, Lerner and Lowe and uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein and studied uh, American musical theater and knew it like the back of his hand. So he was able to teach that to us. Uh, so revisiting that was great. And also realizing and learning um, that Howard was a master of adaptation. He wrote some original pieces and, and they are wonderful, but adapting Tina Turner's story, adapting, um, uh, Little Mermaid, uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, the Kurt Vonnegut novel, adapting that into a musical. He really thrived on taking someone else's core material and saying, you know, I, I really love this for what it is. I love Roger Corman because it's so corny and cheesy and low budget. And I think I can do something with that. Um, and then he does. And he always brings to it <clears throat> a new aspect, a new idea that helps, <clears throat> excuse me, that helps uh, shed new light on it. And so whether that's a musical choice, um, like Caribbean music for Mermaid, um, or a casting choice, he always does these mashups of styles that make it a really fresh new idea. And that's something I had never really thought about before. I, you know, I've, I've sat in meetings with him and I've worked with him, <clears throat> but to see him do that on project after project after project was really interesting. Um, and showed a lot about how, what his approach was. He didn't feel like I have to be completely original here. Every thought I put down has to be uh, from me only. It was the opposite. It was, how can I take pastiche? How can I take someone else's style? How can I take uh, uh, something that's iconic in literature or music and adapt it and use it to my own purposes? And that was brilliant because it brings a familiarity to it. We sit down and listen to the score of Mermaid or Little Shop, and we're familiar with, uh, you know, 50s girl group, Greece kind of soundtracks. We're familiar with uh, Caribbean music. 
And so there's a there's a um, a warmth and an accessibility to it already before you've heard the songs. And then of course on top of it, he writes these clever lyrics. Um, so Howard was much much more than a lyricist. He was a dramatist, a director, a book writer, um, and a teacher. Um, and we were really the beneficiaries of all that. You, you know, you talked very quickly. You talked about how there's the you know the song for the introduction of the hero and the hero's journey and the villain. I noticed too that there's also a song about food and all of his things too. So I have to imagine um, we were very much alike. You know, from Les Poissons to to be our guest, um, he always threw a little bit of food in his in his films as well. Yeah, one of my favorite songs from God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, is a song called Cheese Nips, and it's the host of a party who invites all these people over, and no matter how much of a beautiful spread this society woman puts out, all these people in her town go immediately for the cheese nips. And and so the whole lyric is like, what's the deal with cheese nips? Um, you know, no matter what I do, they want the cheese nips mixed with craft, you know, sandwich spread. And it's just so delightful. I put it in the movie. You know, I, I just like, this is Howard at his best. Yeah. What, uh, we talk about what, you took away you know you as as a the creator of the film and the, the craftsman of the film what kind of lessons do you want or do you think maybe viewers are going to take away from howard the film and howard the man wow um i i hoped to humanize howard so that we can relate to him and that's maybe that comes from 40 years of being at disney and and loving Walt Disney's movies is <laughs> all that Walt tried to do and Howard tried to do was to um, help create characters that we can relate to as an audience so that you see a character, whether it's Thumper the rabbit or Simba or whoever that you can say, yeah, I was once that child. I was once, or I have a niece that's like that or whatever. Um, as brilliant as Howard was, I wanted to um, somehow humanize who he was that he, he didn't go to Yale. He didn't have a great deal of privilege in the theatrical community. He had a very middle-class upbringing in Baltimore. Um, yeah, he was gay at a time when being gay was not uh, something that, you know, you would bring out in the public uh, in the 70s or 80s. I think we're a little more enlightened now about that. So I just want to talk about that. What are the challenges of a human being who happens to be a brilliant human being? And what did he bump up against? Um, you know, here's this kind of middle-class gay Jewish guy from Baltimore. Um, why him? And, and to follow that and say, you know, he didn't go to Yale. He went to Indiana University. Well, that's not very special. And then he moved to New York by himself and, and started a little 99-seat theater in a second floor above a donut shop. Well, that's not very special. And, and you start to hopefully um, uh, kind of pull the layers back and see that it was his persistence. It was his... Um, uh, yes, he was very clever, but he was also a student of all that. So he could he could cite chapter and verse. You know, we would sit down on Beauty and the Beast, and he said, "Well, I think there's a there's a song to be done, and they should dance because in fairy tales, um, dancing is the consummation of love. You know, you can't have sex scenes, so you have dances." Uh, and then he would cite things like the King and I, or Gigi, or you know, have all these references some of which sent us home looking in our encyclopedias at the time because we didn't, you know, we didn't get it. Lines like uh, in, in uh, the mob song, screw your courage to the sticking place or sticking post or whatever. It's like, oh, that's from Macbeth. And we would go, oh, yeah, yeah, Macbeth. Um, so here you have a man operating on a, uh, a level of talent, but a huge level of hard work and preparation. And then uh, flexing that muscle and preparation into his craft. Well, as an audience, 
I think we can look at that and say, oh, that's something that's inspiring. That's something that I can do. I, you know, I'm from a middle-class family. I have obstacles in my life. I um, might be gay or, or uh, a person of color or, you know, whatever. And you have obstacles. So did Howard. And, and I think that kind of human story really is something I hope the audience can take away from it. And I really got the sense that you left so much up to the audience to figure out or decide or or take away themselves. You know, there's a there's a part where there's a discussion about, you know, how much, if any, of, of Howard's personal life did he put into some of the lyrics for the songs that he wrote. And you left in there, you know, that there were differing, opini- differing opinions and let viewers judge for themselves whether Howard was really showing his world through his lyrics and and you know at, at at the very least you were able to subtly bring light to certain topics that forget children that we as adults might not recognize ourselves yeah yeah and and that was another thing Howard did I mean he Bill says it in the movie he didn't make political theater he wasn't an AIDS activist necessarily he was certainly sympathetic to all the things that were going on politically during that era, but he was a dramatist and he was trying to tell stories. And we never had conversations about his illness in the room. We never talked about the AIDS crisis or politics. Uh, it was always about the movie and always about the story. Um, inevitably, you're a you're a product of your times. You know, we will. Um, and the '80s and '90s was a time of uh, you know change, and and uh, and Howard was a product of that. So did some of that work its way into his work? Yeah, probably, but probably not consciously. Um, I guess in in making a movie, there's you can either put forward a strong point of view, you can do the Roger Moore kind of documentaries, which I love, that are putting forward a point of view about what's going on and an issue. There's another kind of a documentary that I guess I favor, which is more of a journalistic point of view, where you put forward the facts as you see them or collect them, and let the audience be the juror in the trial, so to speak. And I like that because uh, life isn't black and white. I like the gray areas and because uh, I think it's more representative of life. And sort of put forward points of view to say, yeah, the mob song in Beauty and the Beast, it's about the AIDS crisis. And the Beast is Howard. Well, some people feel strongly that way. Dan Rather, the uh, journalist, felt that way and wrote a op-ed piece in the, in the Los Angeles Times about that. Um, Howard's sister said, no, that's just hooey. No, he didn't do that. Uh so that's interesting. You know, what? why? Why a debate about that? But there is. So it, it, to be a journalist and put those facts forward and just say, here's the, here's what people are saying, and you as an audience can side one way or the other. And people do. You know, people do. People, uh, even going back to Waking Sleeping Beauty, I, you can put out there, you know, here's Michael Eisner, here's, here's Roy Disney, here's Jeffrey Katzenberg. Who's the hero? Who's the villain? Well, you know what? There isn't one. Uh, <laughs> there's there's aspects of heroism and villainy in in everybody, I suppose. Uh, and and I think that's what makes us interesting as human beings and as characters on the screen. Uh, we're not black and white. We are all these shades of gray. And uh, so I love portraying that in a film like this to be able to say, here's here's what people are saying about Howard. Uh, what do you think? And. You know, obviously, the film—it's—it's um, it's a slow reveal and a slow burn. Uh, you know, talking about Howard and his illness and and his decision to reveal um, at 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 a time that he felt comfortable to people what he was going through because so much of it was was 
uh, unknown to so many people. Um, are you at all, you know, able to talk about your experience in terms of when you learned Alan was sick and and his maybe um, the the change in his attitude from being whether it going from uh, anger to to fear or or acceptance, how that sort of maybe changed over time. Well, when I started working with him, he had just finished Little Mermaid, um, and he, and it was becoming a huge hit. You know, he was the press junket was really successful. Um, I met him for the first time in uh, Orlando, and then very soon after in New York, we um, were working on Beauty and the Beast in uh, London, and it wasn't coming together very well. And so we flew to um, Orlando to meet up with Howard and Alan during the mermaid press junket and just try to pitch them the idea of getting involved in, in um, Beauty and the Beast. So, um, and, and that became clear that we had to work in upstate New York at Howard's uh, location. And we were naive. We honestly thought, and it wasn't because we were uh, trying to block it out or anything else. We just thought, Oh, he's being a diva. He just won an Oscar. And you know, this mermaid is so successful. Okay. So we picked up everybody and um, I got, you know, hotel rooms for everybody at the beautiful residence Inn in Fishkill, New York. <laughs> and uh, we set up, there's an upstairs conference room there. Um, you know, the kind of conference room where you'd have a sales meeting about boilers or something like that. And uh, I brought in an electric piano, um, brought in uh, Howard brought in donuts every morning and Alan drove over and we would sit there and work through the story. And sometimes we would pitch boards and say, okay, here's the opening. Belle goes to town. She buys a book. She buys a loaf of bread. She meets Gaston, uh, or, you know, or, or walks through moments. And then um, we would just workshop those all day long. You know, like we, um, we have this character, this teapot character called uh, uh, Mrs. Chamomile. And um, eventually we thought it was too hard for kids to pronounce. So we changed it to Mrs. Potts, but she was a character from upstairs, downstairs. We thought, you know, kind of this, um, beloved maid, uh, maternal character. Um, Lumiere was, was called Chandal in the first, uh, versions of his songs. So things evolved and changed and moved and we recorded meetings and demoed things. And that process, uh, we were still, not, um, unaware of Howard that anything was wrong after a while it was harder and harder for him even to meet and then it became obvious he was losing weight and and uh, you know wearing suspenders and just looking uh not like himself um so that news was uh sobering and i think it's like with any of us you know if you were we're unfortunately living through a pandemic now where if you hear someone comes down with covid you're like shocked about it um, and, and you can't help but wish them the best. And, and you know, it's it's a shocking reveal, and it was at the time. Uh, but we still worked. You know, we still dove in. We still worked with him and still finished the movie. Even though he never saw the completed movie, we still uh, worked through all the songs and had a good sense of what it was before he passed. So, um, you know, part of it was just naivety on, on our part. And, um, and then when you do find out, he... In a funny way, he became somewhat gentler uh, towards the end of his life, somewhat more, um, less argumentative. He wasn't an argumentative guy, but he was not afraid of expressing his opinion or throwing the occasional ashtray. Um, so he was very clear about what he wanted. Um, still was as he got sicker, but uh, more gentler, but gently uh, about how he expressed himself. Um and obviously we felt a lot of empathy for him and what he must have been going through. And now looking back 30 years, it, it just seems impossible. It's like, how did this guy do all this? 
and that lends some um, heroism to his story on top of it all. Yeah, and and Howard does not end in in a uh, in for me it did not end in a in a sad way because Howard's work continues to live on in in films that he he touched and and live action and stage productions on land and on sea. Um, what do you think? You know, looking back or looking down, um, Howard might say about his legacy and and the things that he created during that time. Um, I don't know. I think he probably would have been self-effacing about it. Um, he was incredibly proud of, of, uh, Little Shop and, and even more so about Mermaid, but he was always very like, oh, I'm not sure this is that good. And, you know, gosh, I hope the audience likes it. Um, you know, with this much distance, who knows what he might say, uh, about it all. And I certainly tried not to think about what he might say about making a film about him. Um, so I think he'd be humbled. I think he'd be really humbled by the audience response because I know he was about little shop, little shop opened in all these countries around the world. Within five years, there was a, a movie about little shop and there was companies playing all over the, you know, behind the iron curtain at the time, there was a company opening in Japan and he was having this huge success, uh, you know, about this little story that he hatched in this little 99 seat theater. So he was, um, thrilled with that success and 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 i think still humbled by the audience reaction um so he i ran across a note in the library of congress that he wrote to be read on opening night of little shop in tokyo and it thanked everyone for coming and told them i hope you enjoy the story and uh perhaps this can finally be a little payback for all the hours that i've enjoyed godzilla and rodan movies <laughs> so <laughs> that says a lot about who howard was well, I think he would be um, so incredibly, like you said, not just humbled but proud, just as you should be. You know, the the reviews are starting to come in. New York Times critics pick today. I think it is nothing short of required viewing for uh, any fan, whether it be of musical theater, of Disney animation. And I, I, from a personal level, Don, I cannot thank you enough for, again, continuing to not just tell stories in such a remarkable way, but bring to light so many of the people who, whose work that we might know, but we might not necessarily know the people behind it. Um, Howard is on Disney Plus right now. Uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough, and I cannot thank you, Don, and everybody who helped to put this film together. So thanks, Lou. That means a lot to me, uh, coming from you especially. I've always been a a fan, as you know, of what you do. So um, I appreciate that very much. Thanks so much. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes what you see, hear, taste, or remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Of course, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week I told you that an attraction, almost really a mini land, based on what Disney film was at one time planned for Italy 
in Epcot Center. Now, first, I explained to you that if that question sound familiar, it's because you probably saw it on my Instagram stories or my Instagram posts. As I've been telling you, I've been doing some daily Disney trivia on my Instagram stories recently, but also moving it over to my posts. So on the stories, I'll be posting multiple choice questions, and from time to time, I'll also be doing posts that allow me to expand a little bit more on some of the details and stories, as well as answer some of your questions about the who, what, when, where, why, and how. And the answer to last week's question is Pinocchio. Because did you know that at one time, there were actually plans for not just a Pinocchio attraction, but a Pinocchio village in Italy, complete with shows, attractions, and yes, maybe even a restaurant. So it would have been much more than a ride with, you know, Stromboli and Tobacco Road. But in fact, we would have been treated to an entire Tuscany-themed area of Italy. Now, there was and still is plenty of room behind the pavilion, so you never know what the future might hold. I'd be totally curious to know if you would like to see a Pinocchio attraction in Italy, or maybe do you prefer less characters and movie tie-ins in this part of the park? Is Pinocchio, for you, still relevant enough? I'll post this question in our community on Facebook, ask you to answer it there and share your thoughts at www.radio.com slash community. But last week's winner, randomly selected, is Bella Jolson. So, Bella, congratulations. Use the online form on the site so I have your shipping address. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So this week, we're going to go from Italy and Epcot to Liberty Square in Magic Kingdom, one of my favorite lands just to wander, explore, and really take in so much of the detail and both real and imagined history. And like many of the lands, both in Magic Kingdom and throughout the parks, there are quote-unquote real inhabitants that occupy the shops and the homes. And if you look very carefully, you might just find where they live, work, and play. So this week, I want you to tell me, what is the name of the instructor who gives music and voice lessons, by appointment only, in Liberty Square? Now, you have until Sunday, August 16th at 11.59 p.m. to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast. There you'll find the entry form. And this week, you're playing for my 102 Ways to Save Money for Not Walt Disney World book, all seven of my digital audio walking tours of Magic Kingdom all of which, by the way, still on sale for just $10 at the stop on www.radio.com. I'm going to just send you a WW Radio vinyl sticker, a Magic Band cover, and a mystery prize from my personal collection. I'm in the process of taking a lot of things I've been collecting for more than four decades, really, that have been just sitting in my closets, on my shelves, or in my garage, and the time has come to start sharing them with you, who can hopefully have more t- space to display them than I do. So I have new auctions every Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern at www.radio.com. They all start at $1, no reserve, and start and end at 9 p.m. Eastern. Everything from vintage Walt Disney World documents, artwork, memorabilia, collectibles. I've got some Star Wars stuff in there as well. Again, you can find them all at www.radio.com slash eBay, start and end, 9 p.m. Eastern. So that's what's good. One of those is going to be pulled from that eBay collection, going to go into your mystery prize package. So good luck and have fun. (music) 
that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Please be part of the community and conversation. Lots of different ways to do it. You can find out by going to www.radio.com slash community and talk about this week's show, anything Disney, any past episodes, Marvel or Star Wars, in our Facebook group at www.radio.com slash group. I also want to thank some of the members of our community who've joined the WW Radio Nation family. I sincerely appreciate your love, friendship, support, and help. And I also love being able to give back to you each and every month with different types of rewards and benefits. I want to thank some of the new and longtime members like Dennis Stragfors, Donna Levin, George Wang, Amanda Walters, Austin Roth, Russell Dameron, and Danielle Sosa. I sincerely appreciate you and everything that you do to help WW Radio. If you want to find out how you can not only help the show, but get exclusive rewards, including scavenger hunts, trivia quests, we have a private Facebook group, custom Magic Band covers, logo gear, t-shirts, backpacks, care packages from Walt Disney World, exclusive live monthly group video calls, early access to special events and more, you can visit www.radio.com support. And don't forget that while this is completely optional, starts at as little as a dollar a month, it really is a great way for you to help support the show. And don't forget that a portion of the proceeds of your contributions do go to our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. And I've been telling and reminding you that so much of what you do really does go to help and support the show. And I've told you for a while, including on social very recently, that something was coming. And actually, some things were coming. And I am so incredibly excited to let the cat out of the bag and finally tell you that I'll use a quote from Carousel of Progress. Now is the time. Now is the best time. And here is the next one, because actually the first thing that I launched earlier this week was a brand new website over at lumangelo.com. If you go there, you can find out how that I can help you turn what you love into what you do. Come to speak at your event or your conference or your business virtually and hopefully soon in person. Work with you in one-on-one calls, small group masterminds, as well as my Momentum Weekend Workshop and Retreat in Walt Disney World, and a few other things I'm working on there as well. Again, you can go check out the new lumangelo.com website. But back to WW Radio, this site has really been in existence in one form or another with its beginnings as DisneyWorldTrivia.com since 2003. And the site has gone under a lot of growth and many, many changes in terms of content with nearly 6,000 blog posts, new additions, including live video, the Dream Team Project, the Running Team, the Nation, and lots more. And today, we're going to turn the page to the next chapter for WW Radio and our community as well. Because some things are new, but in many ways, they're also going to remain the same. Because today, I want to introduce you to the next step in the evolution of WW Radio and a project that I've been working on for more than a year. So I invite you to please go and explore the completely redesigned www.radio.com. Built from the ground up, the interface on both desktop and mobile is all new, easy to navigate, faster and more robust than ever. You can find more of what you're looking for faster and easier than before, whether you are new to the show on the site or if you've been here since 2003. There are direct links to your favorite content, including now more than 600 episodes of the show going back to 2007. 
as well as the live broadcasts, events, and the WW Radio store. There's also an updated about page as well as a new start here page, both for new visitors as well as those who may want to find some things that they have missed before. And as with everything I and collectively we do, this is a work in progress as I will continually be working to improve the site and experience for you. And to that end, look for even more content on the blog from our amazing team, as well as new authors and topics. And yes, I'm going to take this opportunity to say, if you are interested in possibly becoming a writer for the blog or want to help out in a number of different ways, including community relations, marketing, etc., I will post all of those different opportunities on the site at www.radio.com slash contribute. The site and show and live video is going to continue to share all the worlds of Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars, like I keep saying, from the parks to the screens and everything in between. And of course, most importantly, none of this is possible without you. WW Radio is by, for, and with you. And you, to me, are such an incredibly valuable member of our community. And you are a member of the community, whether you listen to the show, whether you engage in the group on Facebook with me on social, if you are a member of the WW Radio running team, which you can again find out more by visiting www.radio.com slash run, you watch live, you come to events, you engage on social, whatever it might be. And speaking of community, there's a slight change there too in name only. Because the the quote-unquote home and name for our community has, for more than a decade, been affectionately referred to as the box people. And a lot of people ask me, you know, what what does that mean? Where did it come from? It actually came from when I first started live broadcasting video from my laptop back in 2007. Live streaming was very much in its infancy. And at one time, somebody asked me at an event, who I was talking to on my computer. I was standing there with my laptop and my webcam and my 3G card, and I'm talking back and forth by myself to the computer. And when this person asked me at the event who I was talking to, I pointed to my laptop and referred to the people who were watching there, that there's all these people watching inside this box. Well, that name stuck, and you sort of latched onto it, and the box people were literally and figuratively born at that moment. But I've always said that, you know, I only built the clubhouse and you, you populate it. You call it home, invite your friends, play, share, and live here. And that's why I think the name is so appropriate because wherever it may live, be it on our Facebook group originally, on our discussion forums, or maybe eventually somewhere else, you are the community And this is our clubhouse where we actually sort of plant the stake doesn't really matter. And with that, the WW Radio Clubhouse is going to be the new name for our Facebook group. Now, look, you will always be a member of the box people. You still live in these boxes, both in my hands, on my desk, and as I go out to the parks and elsewhere. So it's always the box people, but we're going to call it now the WW Radio Clubhouse is going to be the new name of the group on Facebook. You can still get to it by going to www.radio.com slash community. That'll show you all the different ways to be part of the community, but you can go directly there by going to www.radio.com slash group. I didn't change the URL, so don't worry. There's not going to be any broken links for you. So that's it 
for now anyway. Uh, I have a few other irons in the fire and projects I've been secretly working on and will reveal to you soon. But in the meantime, I want you to know and remember that everything I do, I do it for you. And I mean that sincerely. It is not a line. It is something that I truly believe. And all I ask in return is that you continue to enjoy the show and site. And hopefully it brings you happiness and it has a positive impact on you. And that you please pay that forward and spread the word and invite others to join the community, listen to the show. And as always, and most importantly, that you choose the good and be a shining light and examples to others. I believe that positivity is contagious. That's why this community is so special, because the people who are there are there for the right reasons. They're there because their friends invite them into it. I don't market it. I don't do any sales funnel and thing. I don't pay for ads and stuff because I want the people to be there for the right reasons. And that's why it is such a warm, welcoming, family-friendly, and to me, very, very special place. So thank you so much for making WW Radio your home and all that you've done for me and more importantly for each other. I love and appreciate you. If there's anything you need from me, just ask me, okay? Because I I am here to help you any way that I can. And there's always one more little thing because if you saw my very cryptic social post this week, I said that not just something is coming, but some things were coming. And I'm not finished yet, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, I want to keep the conversation going, so please connect with me on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn. Don't forget to like the WW Radio page on Facebook, as well as join the group at facebook.com slash Radio. And again, none of this is possible without you and your help and support. And speaking of which, I have to give huge thanks and credit to Mouse Fan Travel. They have been not just a sponsor, but a partner, but really a friend of WW Radio for more than a decade. It's You've heard me say it before. It's the travel agency that I recommend because it's who I've used and more importantly, who I trust for you. My friend, wherever you are planning to go, whether it's a Disney destination or anywhere on the planet, you can visit them at mousefantravel.com for a free, no-obligation quote. And you can learn more about them and my relationship with Mouse Fan Travel by going to the homepage of www.radio.com. As always, my friend, you are my friend. Whether we have met yet or not, all I ask again is that if you like the show, please help spread the word, especially now. Let other people know about your favorite episode, the new site, tweet out that you're listening, share it on Facebook, and if you can, take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show over in Apple Podcasts. It's incredibly helpful. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Christina C., who says, I needed this in my life. I haven't truly appreciated just how much joy All Things Disney has brought me until the world shut down. The podcast has become part of my daily routine as I clean up at the end of the day. I love my family and feel fortunate to be able to be stuck at home with them. But putting on my AirPods and listening to Lou and little Timmy and Becky is my daily escape from the difficult decisions I face every day raising two young children. Thank you for being a calming and positive voice during a time of uncertainty and bringing the Disney magic into my home every day. 
Shardu says, I love this positive show. I love the positivity, community, and joy that shines through every episode. Lou's well-organized, engaging, and just plain fun to listen to. As an Orlando native and Disney lover, oh, I hope to meet you one day soon in the parks. Um, I love the new things that I learned through the podcast each week. Lou, thanks for bringing love, light, and fun to us every week. Well, Sarah, Christina, thank you so very much again. This is something that we do together, and I feel so incredibly fortunate and grateful and blessed that I am able to do this and share my love and passion for all these things with you in such, again, I come back to this word, in such a wonderful place, a wonderful community, a wonderful family that we call home. Next week, you know, we together... We hit 600 episodes of, of this show, not even counting the show that I did you know, just before this. And it's just a number, but it's a milestone that couldn't happen without you. And we're going to figure out a way to celebrate together next week. And I'm getting choked up because um, <laughs> I never could have imagined 15 years ago when I started podcasting and when I started you know, my with my books in, in 2003, that this is where I would be. This is how I would feel. And these are the friendships with you that I would have. And the new site, the 600 episodes, the community, there's a lot for us to celebrate now. Um, and I think we all need it, maybe now more than ever. Um, so please go check out the site. Enjoy it. Send me any feedback that you might have. Invite some friends to be part of of this incredible community that you've created and to listen and to participate. And I mean it sincerely. If there's some way that I can help you find out how at loumangelo.com, email me lou at www.com or just post in the community on Facebook. Um, Again, for some reason, um, these lines and these songs from Carousel of Progress, which as we know, you know, Walt had his hand in. Walt loved. It meant something to him. I, I love Now is the Time, Now is the Best Time, that, that sort of temporary song for a number of years in the mid-70s and early 80s because this is such an amazing time. But I also, maybe because I have such fond memories of going with my family during that time, I still hear that song from Space Mountain and that line from Space Mountain playing in my head. And it's Here's to the Future and you. And that's exactly how I feel about this site, show, community, and family. So enjoy what we have now, but always keep looking to the future because I still have more that I've been working on that I'm going to announce very, very soon. Stay tuned. I love you. I miss you. I miss the handshakes and the hugs. I appreciate you. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I hope that this is your best week ever. See ya. Here's to the-